Hey, uh, welcome to Redemption Tempe. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be here with you. I've been gone for two weeks, like I said. My wife uh, is pregnant, and uh, she went into labor at uh, 33 weeks, and I was actually in San Diego. I had to drive back, and so uh, the doctors put her on bed rest. Everyone's been asking, how's she doing, how's she doing? She's going insane. She, she has been on bed rest for two weeks, uh, 15 days as of today, and, and she's totally going, going insane. I got home from taking my daughter on a date yesterday, and I saw that the most recent thing my wife had watched on our Netflix Instant Queue was a documentary on Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> I kid you not. And, and, I, and I'm like, what? What, are you, what are you watching that for? She goes, I just feel like I can really relate to them. And, uh, and I'm thinking... You would be the worst prisoner of war ever. <laughs> All right, lady, lay on that couch and do nothing but eat for two weeks. Oh, I'll tell you what you want, right? So uh, she's, she's, uh, she's doing terrible. But uh, um, Tuesday is the day they take her off the drugs. They take her off uh, bed rest, and then we'll get her started on a jumping jack regimen right after that and get this baby out because I am sick of this, okay? And so she. So... Um, so that, that's the update on that. She's doing good. Thanks for your prayers. I know a lot of you guys have been praying and asking about that. Um, one little scheduling thing before we get into the message. I'm having knee surgery, which you guys don't care about, on July 8th, and, and then another one five weeks later on the same knee. And, and I, I don't know what like, my mobility thing's going to be, so uh, my, my preaching schedule for the summer is kind of up in the air. I just wanted to tell you that ahead of time, um, that uh, I may or may not be out depending on what I can do. I'm pretty, I know that after the second surgery, I can't walk for six to ten weeks, okay? And so I can't even stand up for six to ten weeks. And so um, we're, we're trying to arrange where Garth just kind of carries me out here, um, and uh, but we'll see. He's a little weak. And so um, I, I, don't know, I don't know what that's going to look like, but uh, I'll, I'll be here. We'll just, it'll be weird. So uh, that's it. All right. So Genesis 1, Genesis 2 is where we'll be. If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. The guys will bring you one. If you just, uh, if you need one, keep it. It's yours. If you forgot yours today, um, then return it uh, on your way out. We have a way of knowing that. And so um, just go ahead and return that. Um, we are going to be in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, which is pages 1 and 2 uh, in your Bible. If, if you can't get there, uh, you should probably just leave now. I, I won't be of much help to you today. Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we are in week something of our doctrine series of four, I think. Uh, we did uh, Trinity the first week, Scripture the second week, Creation Pastor Ricardo did creation last week, and then uh, we're doing the Imago Day this week. And, and so um, as this thing progresses biblically, we're kind of going from the beginning to the end, um, there are going to be moments in this thing where you uh, read something or hear something and go, come on, that can't be true. Right? If, you've, if you've read your Bible for any amount of time, you have hit these stories where you just go, give me a break. A dude gets eaten by a big fish or a whale, doesn't die, and then gets spit up on the beach of his destination city. Come on, right? Uh, there's a Red Sea that gets parted and a million people walk through it. Uh, a dude walks on water. Give me a break, okay? Um, my sense is um, that you think maybe if I get holier or more wise, or uh, you know, I'm sure Pastor Justin thinks these things are totally normal. No, they're crazy, 
okay? There are a lot of really crazy things in the Bible, um, but none of them crazier than what we've talked about last week and what we're gonna talk about this week. And so um, there's a quote by a guy named D.A. Carson, who's a professor of theology at uh, Trinity Evangelical Theological Seminary in Chicago, and he says this. I think this is really good to kind of set the tone for us. He says this, in the beginning, God created. If you can accept this verse, the very first verse in the Bible, then you really won't have trouble with believing the rest of the Bible. And I thought this was really interesting. I've never thought about um, those first one, two, three, four, five words in your Bible from that perspective until I read this quote a couple of months ago. And and it really makes a ton of sense. It really opened my eyes, I think, that this this verse, Genesis 1-1, God was kind of laying down the gauntlet going, listen, if you can't get past this verse, don't read the rest of the Bible. You're, you're, you're jacked. If, if, if you can't get past in the beginning God created, you'll never get past Jonah. You'll never get past Red Sea. You'll never get past burning bush. You'll never get there. But, but if you can get through those first five words, get through them and go, yeah, I, I, I believe that's true. I get that. Then the rest of it becomes easier. Still crazy, but easier. Right? There's, there's two things that, that God says in these first five words. First, he says, in the beginning, God. That these first five words presuppose a divine being in the universe. Presupposes a divine being in the universe. That if, if there is a God, it would seem that by very definition of being God, that, that God would be divine, would be supernatural, not natural, which just means better than you, okay? So supernatural, powerful, it, it would have some abilities that you would not have. By very definition of being God. But it doesn't stop there. This isn't a deistic understanding of God. This isn't just a, yes, there is this distant God. But he says, in the beginning, God then did something, acted, was involved in creation. says that that God created, and then as we go through the rest of chapter one, created this, created that, created everything. Okay? So these first five words lay down the gauntlet for belief to go, listen, if you believe that there is a God in the universe and that that God is interested enough to create, then it seems as if that lies at the top of the kind of plausibility matrix that everything else is somewhat more plausible than in the beginning God created. In other words, if there's a God, then it seems like that God could do whatever that God wanted to do. If there is a God who created the universe, created everything that there is around us, everything physical, everything philosophical, every law of nature, every you know, physics and all that, it created all of that. It seems like if that exists, if that God exists, and if that God did what that God says, that God, could, that God bad. Okay, so if, if, that, if that's true, then it seems like that God could part seas. That seems like that God could um, cause a fish to swallow a dude and spit him up. It seems like that God could then walk on the water when that God made it to earth. Makes you think about maybe when Jesus was walking on the water, it was just to remind us that he's better than us. Like, what's up? You can't do this, right? So that it, it seems like if we can get past those first five words, in the beginning, God in the beginning God created, that the rest of the Bible falls somewhere beneath that in terms of plausibility. 
Okay, so that's where we start this evening because what I want to tell you tonight, and I'm going to say it early and often, is God made you. You are not an accident. You're not the product of random chance. God made you. God knit you together. He did it on purpose. And that falls somewhere in the, in the range more plausible than in the beginning God, in the beginning God created. If there is a God and if that God is interested enough in the universe to then create that universe, then it is not so far-fetched that God could have created you as well. Okay, So God created you. That's what we want to talk about this evening. So Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, and that man is just mankind, right? Let us make mankind. I see six implications of this, six ways that God created humanity uniquely. So if you know the story at all, God spent five days creating the universe, and then on the sixth, created humanity, but he did it in a unique way. Not only was it on its own day, but it also involved different means and different ends and different purposes. I see six of those in these first two chapters, and that's where we want to start. So chapter two, verse seven, there is a uniqueness of the way God made us. Chapter two, verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. If you know the story at all, or if you don't, I'm about to tell you. Um, for five days, God spoke things into existence. Okay? God spoke night and day. God spoke light and dark. God spoke waters and land. God spoke animals. God spoke trees. And then on the sixth day, it says, he says, let us make man. So it's almost as if there was a huddle between father, son, and spirit. And they're like, all right, it's day six. It's man time. Let's do this. And, and, they, and there's something changed. The, the method changed. Very easily, God could have just gone, let there be man, right? Let there be mankind. But he didn't. For some reason, God changed the way that he created. And he, it says that he took from the dust of the ground. So it's this idea of God stooping down, gathering dirt, gathering dust, forming it and molding it in God's metaphorical hands, and then breathing life into it. Not speaking it from a distance, but, but breathing life into it. You almost get a mental picture of God taking Adam's face and getting right up near it and breathing into his nostrils life. It's interesting that God would create the entire universe in one way and then create humanity in a, in a very different way. In fact, there's a, there's a level of um, intimacy that comes with this kind of proximity that God from a distance creates everything and then God gets right up in Adam's business and breathes life into him there's there's very few people that we would get this close to right there's there's very few people unless unless you're one of those close talkers but there's in which case just stop okay um, but there's very few people that we would get this close to. For me, there's two, my wife and my daughter. And my wife is bigger than this, but my wife and my daughter, nonetheless. Okay. In fact, I, I've told you this before, but I've got a theory that um, every time I kiss my daughter, it's one, last, one less kiss she's going to need from some stupid boy down the road. And so I kiss her a lot. I kiss her all the time. I always scoop her up and kiss her, especially when she's running around with like Ricardo's kid or Jason's kid. I don't trust him. And so I'll scoop her up. <laughs> Give him a kiss and be like, what's up, right? Just to, 
establish some dominance early. And so <laughs> there's, there's, just, there's just a level of intimacy that this kind of proximity suggests. And that's how God created humanity. From, from the very outset of our relationship with God, from the, our very creation, God does things differently, more intimate, more personal, more important. Number two, there is a uniqueness of our perfection. Chapter one, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. For five days, God created and said it's good. Created, good, created, good, created, good, created, good. On the sixth day, creates humanity, steps back and says, that is very, very good. It is clear from the scriptures that humanity is the apex of God's creation. We are the most unique, the most complex, the most important part of God's creation. And sometimes people flinch weird at this and go, yeah, but what about the animals? And what about the trees? I like to hug them. And, and they, they just, they, they get weird about it. And they go, well, if, if we think of ourselves as the most perfect, as the ultimate, the apex, won't we abuse um, the animals? Won't we abuse the creation around us? And I would say, you, you could, but you should stop. Um, and, and the main theological reason that you should not abuse the animals and the trees and those things around you is number three there is the uniqueness of our calling chapter 1 verse 28 the end of it in particular God says to man and woman be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates mankind after creating everything gives us this role of having dominion Okay? This is not just naked, raw power over. This is dominion. It's to protect, to care for, and keep the rest of God's creation. This is not um, God setting humanity in front of uh, the buffet and just going, have at it, use it, abuse it, it's all for you. This is God saying, here is my creation. I am, am placing you, the apex of my creation, in a position of having authority, yes, but also responsibility for the rest of my creation. So um, as of yet, I've created two things in this world. One of them's my daughter, Lily. One of them's my as yet unborn son. And because he's still on the inside, I haven't had to get him a babysitter yet, but I have for Lily. And, and, I'm, and I'm very, very picky about who babysits my daughter. I'm very picky. I, it's not just random. There's a retaking of the SAT. There's some agility drills. There's some things. There's just some things you gotta do, okay? Because, because I care deeply about my daughter. I expect those who babysit to care deeply about her safety, to, to love her like I would love her, to protect her like I would protect her, to care for and provide for her like I would care for and provide for her. I expect you to consider her needs over your own because I deeply care about her needs and I, and I don't care about yours. And so um, in effect, in effect, I expect my babysitters to be an extension of myself. I, I expect them to care for my daughter like I would care for my daughter or like my wife would care for my daughter. God giving us dominion over his creation is no different. God saying, here is my creation. Here is my child. Now care for it, protect it cultivate it. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Number four, there's a uniqueness of our morality. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives humanity um, an ethical code, a moral code that is meant to supersede our animal desires. So we have the same desires as, as the animals around us. We have desire to eat and drink and sleep and procreate and be protected and all these things. For us, we've been given the ability to curb those animal desires in the name of a higher law, in the name of a higher ethic. So when an animal's hungry, it finds food. When an animal wants to procreate, it procreates. It busts out of doors and whatever it's gotta do to go procreate. We have the ability to curb those desires, though we often don't use them. We do have the ability to curb those desires. So we don't just eat whenever we want to eat. We don't just drink whenever we want to drink. We don't just procreate whenever we want to procreate, most of us. We, we, we curb those desires. We have moral obligations that supersede our animal instincts. Number five, there is a uniqueness of our completion. Chapter two, verse 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." There's an interesting moment here when God, after creating for six days, saying, good, 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 very good, then looks down at his creation, sees Adam by himself and says, that's not good. We've got to fix that problem. And so in this kind of weird, bacheloresque kind of moment, God parades all these animals in front of Adam, um, and he's like, no, too hairy, no, I don't like the antlers. So the whole deal goes through the whole thing, and it says that, that God could not find a helper fit for him. And so God creates a woman and if some of you ladies are going I ain't no helper so that word that word is used to describe God in the scriptures that is in no way a denigration in no way a denigration and so I picture this moment when Adam wakes from his um, God-induced sleep and sees Eve across the way. And, and the, I just picture it in slow-mo. I just like everything in slow-mo. And so they're kind of running towards each other, and he's thinking, there's no horns, you know, there's no fur, right? And there's, a, there's an embrace, and while they're kissing for the first time, there's this voice over God going, be fruitful and multiply. And, and, and Adam just worshiping in that moment. You're a good God. You're a good God, you know? So... Um, this is one of those like, this is one of those crazy stories. This is one of those crazy moments. But there's there's something here theologically that I don't I don't know that I want to press too hard. But it seems clear that there is to to some degree an an incompletion when when man or woman is alone. 
Now, I'm not gonna go so far as to say that single people don't fully bear the image of God. That's foolish, I think. Um, But there is something in the togetherness of man and woman that, that perhaps most fully or perhaps just uniquely represents the image of God, which is our sixth thing. There is a uniqueness of our image. Chapter one, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we've got this um, Hebrew poem here where there's kind of a one-to-one format where God says he created mankind in his own image and then jumping down to the third line, male and female, he created them, which has led many theologians to believe that there is something unique about the togetherness of man and woman that most fully or most uniquely demonstrates the image of God. Both male and female traits, both male and female personality being put together to as one flesh communicate the image of God. But there is something unique about us being made in the image of God. The Bible doesn't say that the animals were made in the image of God or the trees were made in the image of God, but only humanity was made in the image of God. And theologians have wrestled with, what does this mean? Is it something inherent within us? Is it something that we are that makes us made in the image of God? Is it something that we do? Is it some activity? Is it when we obey God that we bear his image? We, we, we would use this language of image and likeness in terms of physical likeness, where we go, oh, he looks so much like you, or thank God she doesn't look like you, or whatever, that, you know, that kind of thing. So is it a physical thing? Do, do we in some way bear a resemblance to God? These are questions that have been asked over the centuries. And so what I see here are four implications, four daily implications of us being made in the image of God. Number one, we're created in the image of God. Therefore, we are who God says we are. I remember two or three years ago standing in the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And I was standing in front of this painting, and I'm not a huge art guy, and so I'm standing in front of it trying to figure it out, and I'm going, yeah, that's a, that's a painting. And, 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 I, and I'm trying to figure out more than anything else, like, what is it about this painting that makes it valuable? Right, I mean, I, I don't know what the monetary value of this painting was, but it was valuable enough to be on the wall at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And so I'm standing in front of this thing going, what is it about this that makes it valuable? And I'm thinking, it, it can't be the paint, right? I mean, this is a, it's an old painting, I don't know, a million years old. And, and, uh, and so certainly our, our paint quality is better. If, if, not, if nothing else, it's no worse than the paint quality that's on this painting. And so I'm going, okay, it can't be the quality of the paint that makes this painting better. And I'm thinking it can't be the canvas for the same reasons. We have to have better canvases now, right? And, and, and so I'm looking at this, and I'm going, is it the colors? thinking, well, every artist has, has access to the same kind of uh, array of colors, and, and someone could duplicate those same colors, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as valuable. So I'm thinking, okay, well, it's not, the, it's not the colors themselves, and it's not the paint, it's not the canvas, so, so what is it? And, and I realized that as I'm, as I'm standing looking at that painting, um, that what gave that painting value was, was the little placard next to it that said Vincent van Gogh. It was, it was that placard that gave that painting value. Someone looked at that and said, oh, Vincent van Gogh made this? Boom, that goes on the wall. That has value because the creator endows 
value on his creation. Now, some of you artists are going, no, there's inherent beauty and people recognize the beauty and give it value. Uh-uh. Because when I was leaving the museum, I went through the gift shop and there were a hundred rolled up prints of that exact painting. They look just the same. There's a picture, right? So it, it is the exact, the same beauty, the same thing. And they were 9.99, right? And so I, I'm guessing that the painting wasn't 9.99 or I would have bought it right? And so uh, there's something different because that, that print bears the same image as the painting, and yet that's $9.99, and that is um, really valuable because the hand of Vincent van Gogh painted that painting. He endows that painting with value. Here's the good news in that. Being created in the image of God means that we have inherent value. Not because of anything we've done or not done, not because of anything we are or are not, not because of any, any success or failure, but because we were created by God. This means that throughout our lives, our value has never changed. Those moments of success that you have did not increase your value. Those moments of failure did not decrease your value. Your value is not tied up in you. It's tied up in your creator who created you. Okay, so I, I, I told you I'm not an art guy, so an illustration for the rest of us. I grew up um, in the Northwest and was a Mariners fan back when the Mariners were good. And uh, this was like the 80s. And uh, and I remember going to games of the kingdom, which has now exploded. And, and, uh, and I remember sitting in the outfield hoping um, that one of my heroes would hit a home run. So guys like um, Ken Griffey Jr. and Edgar Martinez and Jay Buhner. And I mean, just these great, great guys. Randy Johnson was on those teams. Alex, I mean, just the list goes on. Um, but I remember um, sitting in there with my glove as a 25-year-old and, and just hoping hoping that I would be able to catch a home run ball, just dreaming about the moment when Griffey hit a bomb and I stretched up and caught it and I had the ball and the manager's like, hey kid, we need a right fielder. And, you know, and then I signed a contract and all that. But then, then going home and putting that ball on my mantle and people going, wow, that's a cool ball. And yeah, Ken Griffey Jr. hit that home run. Right? You know what I never dreamed about? I never dreamed of being in the stands and catching a home run ball um, hit by Dave Valley. And you go, who? Exactly, backup catcher. <laughs> Catching a home run by, you catch that ball and you just go, uh, where's a kid, make me look good, there you go. Because uh, it has no value, other than the fact that it's probably rare, because he doesn't hit that many home runs. Uh, it, <laughs> it's not that, the creator of that home run ball is not have the same value. The creator gives value to the creation. This should be really good news for some of us who have spent months, years, maybe our whole lives dealing with depression, struggling with measuring up. Maybe our lives have never been able to please our dad or our mom. We've never been as successful as our older brother or older sister. And we've woken up every morning going, okay, I gotta make it today. I gotta make it today. I've gotta, I've gotta prove myself. I've gotta please my parents. I've gotta please my friends. I've gotta live up to my expectations. And your life has been largely marked by failure in your eyes, maybe in the eyes of those around you. And you have fought tooth and nail day after day to have any kind of sense of value, any sense of identity at all. 
this should be encouraging news to you to know that your value is not tied up in your performance. You are no more valuable because you're powerful or because you're rich or because you're successful or because you're moral. Your ability to follow Christ closely does not make you more valuable. Your inability to follow Christ, your constant rebellion, your mistakes, your sin does not make you any less an image bearer of God. Your value is constant because your creator is constant. So this should be an encouraging word for some of you. For others, for some of you arrogant achievers, this should be a corrective word. No matter what you've done, no matter what you have, you are no more valuable today than you ever have been. And I'll I'll just give you a a word straight. Nobody likes you. (laughs) Okay, because you, whether consciously or not, you look at the people around you as less valuable. You look at them and go, well, I've achieved this and you have not. I've done this. I have this. I haven't done that. And therefore, I'm better than you. And so there may be people around you. You may have friends, but they just, they want something from you. They don't like you because you're a jerk. And you've created this distance because your success has made you think you are more valuable than the people around you. Our value doesn't change because our creator doesn't change. Our value does not come from our performance, but from our creator. Number two, because we are created in the image of God, we do what God tells us to do. There is a relationship between creator and creation that we enter into when we begin to understand that we are not the product of millions of years of random chance, but that we were created intentionally by God for a purpose. That there, there's a relationship between creator and creation. In, in, in many realms, in most realms, creation never rebels against creator. When the, when the painter, if we want to continue this illustration, um, when the painter goes to the paint and is headed to the canvas, canvas to paint a, a, a dude, that, 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 that paintbrush never turns on him and goes, hey, no, not a dude. Let's, do, let's go countryside today. That's never happened. Okay, it's never happened that the paintbrush has rebelled against the painter. Okay, if that's happened to you, just say no. Just say no to drugs, okay? So this, this doesn't happen. The, well, to give a better illustration for us here, since it seems like everyone under 30 is a photographer, the, the camera <laughs> never turns on, right? Okay. It's cool. I love your pictures. Facebook wouldn't exist without you, so. <laughs> there, there is an order, there is a relationship that creation has to creator. Where, where we stand underneath the, the sovereignty, the authority of the God who gave us everything that we have, who made us everything that we are. There, there's nothing in our lives that, that, that is self-generated. Right? There's nothing that you have that is ultimately a product of you. And, and the achievers go, well, I've worked hard. I've done this. I've done that. Fantastic. Who gave you legs? You, you, you did not will your legs into existence. You, you did not work so hard that, that a brain formed. 
You were given those things. Not only were you given the basic functions of humanity, but guess what? Most of you were born into the most prosperous nation in the most prosperous time in human history. Did you do that? No. We owe everything to God. Therefore, if we are going to live in this relationship and acknowledge this relationship, then we stand under the authority of God. Now, many of us would go, yeah, 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 I, I believe in God. I believe God's more powerful than me. Great. And I've used this before, but this is a really important tool to answer this question. Do you believe in a God who can disagree with you? Do you believe in a God who can tell you no? I want to do this with my life. God goes, no, that would be really bad. Who wins? I, I want to date or marry this person. No, he's a really bad guy. Yeah, but he's cute. No. Who wins? Or perhaps more importantly, this social, moral, political issue is right. And God very clearly goes, no, that's broken and really wrong. Who wins? Who wins that? Because if over and over and over with your future and your decisions and defining morality and defining what's good and defining what's evil, if over and over and over and over you win, then, then you don't believe in a God. You, you don't in any functional way believe in a God. You believe in a counselor. You believe in a buddy. You believe in a sky fairy. You believe in, you know, Dr. Phil, a genie. You believe in a crisis manager, whatever it is, but you don't believe in a God. If this God has no ability to cross you, to disagree with you, or to tell you no, it's not God. If you define what is right and wrong in the universe, your God. You don't believe in a God. Your God. And, and I'll just promise you that'll end in destruction and pain. You, you're not good enough to be God. I, none of us are. None of us are. There's an increasing amount of these questions around us. There's an increasing amount of moments for us to go, well, I think that's right. And God's going, no, that's not right. And it's been my consistent witness throughout history that that is wrong. And we have these moments, and there are just an increasing amount of moments where we have to go, okay, does God win, or do I slash culture slash my friends slash pop? Who wins? Who wins? So because we are created in, in God's image, we do what God tells us to do. Number three. Because we are created in God's image, we are responsible to have dominion over the rest of creation. So we talked about our, our responsibility to care for, protect, and keep the, the environment around us, God's creation, the, the animals and the plants and all that. And there, there's a responsibility that we have to not abuse, but to use wisely and to respect and to care for what God has given us, God's creation. Not because it has inherent value separate from God, but because God gave it to us God entrusted it to us. But even more importantly than that, perhaps, is the responsibility that we have to treat one another as image bearers. Um, Dr. Grudem from a book, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem from a book about biblical manhood and womanhood said this about the image of God, and I think it's brilliant. He said, the image of God is evident in our unique spiritual, moral, mental, relational, and physical capacities. 
Humans reflect the image of God in varying degrees and ways, but no one is made in more of God's image or less of God's image. The foundation of Christian ethics is the assumption that all humans are made in God's image regardless of the presence or absence of certain abilities. From conception to death, all human beings are God's image bearers and all are creatures of profound dignity and value, equally worthy of protection and respect. The value of human life is not affected or determined by age, disability, race, intellectual ability, emotional or mental state, relational powers, or gender. This is unbelievably important for us to get. This might be the broadest and deepest of all the implications of being created in the Imago Dei. That there is no person or no category of persons that bears any more or less of the image of God. That, that's why things like racism and sexism and any other kind of bias that you can come up with is an affront to God. Because those are God's image bearers, equally bearing God's image. This is, as Grudem said, foundational to Christian ethics foundational to the way that we think about one another and treat one another. The moment that we start to say, well, my category is better than your category. We have big problems. This is why there are multiple black marks on the history of the Christian church. Moments when we stood idly by where government regimes said this category is better than this category or we actively participated, saying this category is better than this category, therefore this category can enslave or destroy this category. That's why we have to fight against injustice and oppression of other human beings. Because they are made in God's image and likeness. That's why we should be active, socially speaking out against these kinds of oppressions. Not because it's cool, not because it's the thing to do, not because it's popular, but because we believe that all humans are created in the image of God. That's foundational to the way that Christians ought to see the world. And why we should never put up with things like racism or sexism. No category is better than any other category. You are no better than you, and you are no worse than you. We're all created in the image of God. We have a responsibility to have dominion not only over the animals and the plants, but over one another to care for, protect, and keep one another. Lastly, because we are created in the image of God, ultimately it means that we are made to be mirrors of God and should reflect him. And there's four ways that we should reflect him. I'm going to do this very quickly. First, we reflect God morally living out God's universal ethic and demonstrating the way the world works. Um, so a couple months ago in our James series, I told you that um, if you would obey God, your life would be better, right? And this wasn't some kind of health wealth promise. It was the understanding that most of your problems are the result of your mistakes, your rebellion against God, or the rebellion of people around you against God. Most of our pain and most of our suffering comes from us not walking with God. Let me put it in, in the sense of this evening's message. The more you can reflect the image of God, the more that you are a mirror of your creator, the better, more satisfying, and more joyful your life will be. 
Number two, we are to mirror God purposefully. God from the very beginning is a worker, a creator, and a cultivator. And we in his image should be workers and creators and cultivators. Creating culture, working hard. Work is not a part of the fall. Parts of our work are from the fall. Our commute is from the fall. All staff meetings are from the fall. Your boss is probably a result of the fall. Number three, we should mirror God relationally. We talked about this in week one in the Trinity that for all eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been an example of what true community, self-giving, others-loving, self-sacrificing community might look like. That if we could mirror God in our relationships, our relationships would be better, more fruitful, less pain, less suffering. Lastly, we mirror God missionally. We are a part of God's redemption story. For whatever reason, God has chosen to use us, his church, to redeem people, to speak of his plan to redeem all creation. Some of us get a little weird about evangelism because we picture a dude with a blowhorn standing on a crate yelling at people, and, that, and that's, that's all bad, okay? But what if we thought about evangelism this way? If we truly believe that all humans are created in the image of God, and yet we, we, we live marred, broken, we, we struggle with that, we struggle to actually mirror God fully, the fall has, has impacted us, and we'll talk about that next week, but if all humans are created in the image of God, and yet we as believers have the word of God and relation with God, the Holy Spirit in us that teaches us what it means to truly be human, what if evangelism, we thought about simply the demonstration and proclamation of what it means to be human? That we could demonstrate this, this is the way that we were meant to be. This is the way that humans were supposed to interact with one another. This is the way that humans are supposed to interact with God, not to be pushed aside or drawn away by these petty desires, these little things in our life, but to fully be human the way God intended for us to be human. We could, we could reflect God's desires for, our creation, for his creation in our daily lives. But, but that brokenness, kind of gets at the heart of the struggle. It's, it's easy for us to say, wow, we need to mirror God and um, we need to care for one another and cultivate culture and we need to protect and have dominion and we need to do all these things and yet we oftentimes struggle simply to get out of bed. I mean, some of us, some of us we lost right at the beginning saying that we actually have value. That you struggle to wake up in the morning and, and just go, is it worthwhile to get up? So some of us struggle to, to even have a, have a vision of what this might look like and, and how it would play out and where to even begin. We, we feel so broken and shattered and splintered and we're going, what does it even mean to be whole? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be this, this image bearer? We, we have in Christ the, the example of that. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, he, Jesus, is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we have first and foremost that Jesus is the only one to have ever fully demonstrated what it means to be human. That Jesus was the only one to fully and completely and purely reflect and mirror God. So at least we can look at the life of Christ and see what that might look like morally and missionally and relationally. We can see what that would look like purposefully, that, that Jesus knew what lay before him and he, he encountered that every day and he loved people and he was in community with his disciples and we can look at his life as an example. But the moment we see that example, the moment we see him and, and what it looks like to fully mirror God, we immediately in that see the gap between our lives and his. Immediately. The moment we recognize the purity in him, we see the impurity in ourselves. So this would be soul-crushing if the passage ended here. Where we'd just be reminded moment by moment by moment, we don't live up, we don't live up, we don't live up. There's a huge gap. And yet that was not all Christ came to do. He was not only the example for us, but verse 20 says that through him he came to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he was not only there to be the example to, so that we could see and vision what this life might look like and to show us the great gap in between us and him, but he also came to close that gap. To give us hope that one day when he returns that we will be restored, this whole creation will be restored and we will one day experience what it means to be fully human. If we pursue Christ, pursue the one who fully mirrored God, fully mirrored him not only in his life but in his death that self-sacrificing others valuing love that lies at the heart of humanity that lies at the heart of the trinity that we were created in god's image to be that kind of self-giving self-sacrificial type of person and we can't get there without christ so in those moments where we go, man, I just don't know if I'm going to do this. I don't know if I can get up out of bed. I don't know if I, those are the moments we have to turn back to Christ, not only as our example, but as our Savior. The one who can put together the broken pieces, the one that can close that gap. Let's pray. Lord, we're deeply thankful for a beautiful doctrine like this that teaches us that our value is not wrapped up in what we have done today or what we will do tomorrow. That we don't have to worry about our failures and we cannot boast about our success. That our value is constant. That our value is in our creator. Lord, I pray that that would encourage us. I pray that that would correct us. I pray that in light of that, we would strive to mirror our creator, to worship him fully by revealing him to the people around us, mirroring him morally, purposefully, relationally, and ethically. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in meaningful ways this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.